The seerah is divided into two parts, the what we call the Makkan and the Madani periods. And as a matter of fact, the Quran is based on that. So whenever you open up the Quran, some verses of the Quran are either Meccan verses or they're Madani verses. And just to sort of give you understanding, in the Meccan period, as Muhammad Salam's received his revelation and he's carrying the Dawah, surprisingly, there is hardly any rulings of Islam have come down. There's no Ahkam, not Salah, drinking has not been forbidden, Zakat hasn't been instilled, many of the rules haven't come into place. And the reason why, because Hazrat Aisha radiallahu anha, she said something very interesting. She said that if Islam came down and came down with all its hard rulings, forbid people from drinking, forbid people from fornicating, forbid people from doing X, Y, and Z, then many people will not have been able to follow Islam. If you want people to follow your way, and this, I guess we should kind of install this when we also teach as leaders or as parents and so forth, you can never rule with an iron fist. You can't force people to follow a certain rule without having a level of conviction behind that. So there could be a case whereby you could force people to do something, but eventually that society will revolt. Kids who have come in a family with a very hard upbringing where they don't get a choice and there's no explanation and the rules have just been applied and there's no common sense behind that, you find a lot of the children start to rebel. And unfortunately, in this day and age, when it comes to Islam, a lot of our parents because we come from an Islamic background, but we don't carry the wisdom, the hikmah with that, we just know Islam from a cultural perspective. You need to pray, you need to go to the mosque, you need to fast, etc. But we are unable to explain the value of why. What happens over time, naturally you start to rebel against doing certain things. I mean, I definitely did that growing up. Every time I was forced to pray or go to the mosque, and there was no logical wisdom behind it. And for me, it was harder because I went to a school that was predominantly all non-Muslims. So I didn't exactly have the influence or the concept of any sort of Islam from anybody else, except for the very extreme opposing ideas. So that made me rebel quite a lot without having the, the conviction. This is one of the reasons Hazrat Aisha said that Islam came in to bring all the rules. A lot of people were not followed it. Instead, what Islam came with was the rational conviction of Allah SWT, having the Iman and the Taqwa. And so what was beautiful about all of this period, and we're talking about a good 12, 13 years, that Muhammad Sallam spent continuously reminding these people, reminding the Quraysh about the Tawheed, the oneness of Allah, breaking away from this idol worshipping. And breaking away from this idol worshipping means that if you take away this onus and this, this worship to these gods, you automatically break away from all of their rules and their rituals and so forth. So what Muhammad was trying to instill everyone, there's only one God, I am the Prophet and there are rules to come down. So when he pushed this idea, this was a big problem for people. It's like now we, we have the same problem as Muslims. We have lived in decades of ignorance. Whatever Islam we have is cultural Islam. And if you try to explain to someone that actually this isn't part of Islam and this is part of Islam and this is the reason why we do this, people really get their back up about this. And as a result of that, this has caused all sorts of issues. It's caused fights in masjids. If you go to Pakistan, it's caused people to get killed. People have been accused of blasphemy. People have been accused of all sorts of things, imprisoned. And it's, it's crazy to think that because of the lack of knowledge and the lack of understanding that we've ended up in that situation. So this is why it was critical, because without having that foundation, have that basis, 
How are you going to move forward? How is Muhammad going to spread Islam to the rest of the world when he's going to be challenged, not by the Arabs, but he's going to be challenged by the Greeks, he's going to be challenged by the Romans, by the Persians, by other philosophers around the world who are going to give you hard discussions. If you put a Muslim today now with a non-Muslim who is slightly academic, I mean, my daughter tells me when she used to go to university and she used to get into discussion and debate, people used to throw really hard questions that we as Muslims are unable to answer. And we should never be in that position. We were at the forefront of the world. We could answer any questions. We could tackle any questions that were thrown to, whether it be philosophy, whether it be science, would be anything. We would take it from the Quran and the Hadith. But we don't know even the fundamental. I mean, we're dealing with situations when you talk to Muslims, they don't even understand the difference between Quran and Hadith. They think Hadith is in the Quran. They don't understand the difference. They don't understand why we pray. They don't understand many of the rulings. And this is a real big problem. And this is why I keep saying that the eventuality will be tomorrow your children may have what you have taught them. Now, you know yourself how much you know. Whatever you know is what you're going to teach your kids. And you'll be fortunate if your children have the wisdom enough to encourage themselves to go and learn about Islam. But most kids are not going to do that. So when they grow up and they get married, what Islam are they going to teach their children? So you can see this very exponential change over the course of 10, 20 years of what the Muslim state will be like. And this is a problem. And even worse than that, when you've got a situation like in Palestine and Kashmir, where Muslims are calling for help, we will be sitting on this side thinking we have no connection with them. If we don't practice ourselves, how will we have any love and affection for them? So Muslims spent a lot of time preparing them. And this was very fundamental because of the fact that what they needed was strength of conviction in, in Allah and their conviction in their heart. Not the rules, they just needed that conviction because what was going to happen afterwards in the next 10 years was going to really test them. But right now, what was interesting about, and people please, you know, this is not disrespect to Muhammad Sallam or anything like this, this is the facts. Muhammad Sallam was growing as a prophet during this period and he himself was going through that test. Last week we talked about the year of sorrow. They say it is the, all the, the classical sorrows, it was the worst time in Muhammad's life, the lowest of the low, right? Where he really got pushed and tested. And Allah wanted to do this to prepare Muhammad for the upcoming next 10 years, to completely change his character. Before he was very loving, very soft, he had some level of patience and he would get frustrated when people won't convert. There was many challenges that he had. So Allah tested him with these three things that we spoke about last week. Number one, the death of his uncle Abu Talib, who, if you remember, he was a kuffar. He loved the Prophet so much, as a matter of fact, Muhammad loved him so much over many of the Muslims. So that first shows you that you can have worldly affection and love for a non-Muslim. There's no doubt. Religious love is something different. But this was his uncle. And when his uncle died, he would not take the shahada. He pleaded and pleaded and pleaded and it broke his heart because he knew the conviction of hell, which unfortunately we don't have that conviction. Hell was like for him looking out the window, looking at that tree. That's how real it was. So he knew what he was going to face. And when you love someone so much, just imagine your own children, just you have kids. Could you imagine your kids being tortured by the enemy? No. Could you imagine something really nasty happening to your children or to your parents? No, you can't. Well, hellfire is a million times worse than that. So could you handle this? Could you handle knowing that the people that you love are going to get worse than your worst nightmare on this dunya? 
So you imagine for Muhammad it wasn't just his death, it was the pain that he did not become Muslim. And he grieved for him and he tried to make dua. And on top of that, Allah stopped him from making dua. He said it's not befitting upon the Muslims or even the Prophet to make dua for a non-believer after he has been shown the signs. After he's been shown the signs, it is not, why should you? You have no right. He was given this life to see the truth. For, for Pete's sake, we sent him the prophet. He was in his family. He was right in front of his face. But because of the fact he would not give up what? He would not give up following his forefathers. And what do we all do? Our dad told us to pray this way. Our dad told us to do this. Our mom told us to do this. Our auntie to do this. And you talked about something else and they're not willing to open their mind. And Allah says, for that, Allah says in the Quran, is those who follow their forefathers. And if it's wrong, you will all be thrown, your fathers, and you will all be thrown into hell. So we have to change. We have to change this. So for Muhammad it was grief upon grief. He couldn't. And one Sahabi said to Muhammad what were you able to do? You are a prophet. If you can't do it, no one can do it. He goes, the only thing I can do is take him from the deepest depth of hell and bring him to the most shallow point. And that is when he steps in, the fire burns up to his ankles, not the rest of his body. But it's so severe, it bores his brain and he, and he will not die. The pain will continue and continue. Then immediately after that, only 30, he didn't have time to even grieve for this man. 35 days after that, his beloved wife passes away. And she was the one that gave him the emotional strength. She was the one that when he came home and he couldn't show the the weak side of Muhammad Salam, like, you know, he had to go home and, you know, like, let, he needed to talk to someone. When the Sahabi are being tortured in front of your face, you can't show your weakness, you have to be strong for them. When your children are upset, you can't be the weak one, you've got to stand up and be the man. When your wife and your family are upset, you've got to be strong. When your mother and father are old and they need support, you've got to be strong. When you're in financial difficulty, if you lose your job, you have to stand up and be strong. So Muhammad where does he go to? He went to his wife Khadija. And Khadija radiallahu supported him all the way through. And he needed that. He needed that. And Allah took her away. 35 days later. And then when his dawah got worse in, in Makkah, it was basically open season for the Quraysh. They attacked him. They attacked him. They did all sorts of stuff to him. They started throwing rubbish on him. His daughters were crying. He was coming home. They had to clean the rubbish off him. To see your parents abused in that way is awful. And there's nothing that they can do. Then he decided to go to Taif. He said, I'll try Taif. I'll try my dawah there. And that was even worse. He didn't even get that treatment in Makkah. They chucked and threw stones at him for miles until they kicked him out of Taif. And then Allah had then sent the angels down. And the angel was ordered, you tell us now we'll destroy these people. And he said, no, I don't want that. This is the mercy of Muhammad Sallam. He goes, my job is to spread Islam. And I will pray that if they don't follow, their children will follow Islam with that hope. When Muhammad Sallam got down to his lowest of the low, this is where Allah SWT promised from this point, he said, for the believers, for the believers and for the Prophet, when you get tested and you get hit with everything, right? Everything in this life you get hit. Allah SWT says, He promises after that He will bring you reward. He will bring you something in this dunya to lift your spirits up. So this is a lesson for us that whenever you get hit hard, you've got to remember this is a musibah or a musibah from Allah SWT. It's targeted for you. 
This wasn't random. It wasn't because some guy let you down or because, you know, the, the Uber taxi driver got you late for your interview. No, it's because Allah wanted that problem to happen to you for a reason. And then one night when Muhammad was sleeping, he was in his house sleeping, upset, broken, didn't know what to do. Situation Taif in the Quraysh, uncle died, wife's not there with him, house is alone. You know what it feels like, yeah? Some of you guys, you know what it feels like. You've got lost ones. It's very hard to go back to a house when, the, when you lost someone, right? So where I see is there, Angel Jibreel comes down to Muhammad and he comes through the roof. And he says to Muhammad come with me. So Muhammad goes with Angel Jibreel and he takes him to the Kaaba, right? Where the Hijr is, you know, the open part. There, he takes Muhammad he lays him down and he performs the second opening of the heart. Now, if you remember at very early stage, the first opening of his heart was done when he was the age of five or six years old. And the angels came down when he was adopted by his foster family, the angels came down, his foster brothers, they saw some men dressed in white holding him down. And he came running, his foster brother scared, telling his foster parents, someone's holding down Muhammad, they're doing something, they're killing him, they're killing him. And what they'd done, Muhammad described that the angels had opened up his abdomen and they removed a black spot from his heart. And this is interesting. So the black spot, every Muslim, every believer, everyone actually, not just Muslim, everyone is born with a black spot. This black spot is put in by shaitan. Shaitan puts a black spot in. Surah Baqarah talks about this. He says, this black spot grows like cancer. If you don't look after your body, that cancer starts to grow. Yeah? All right? It will organically keep growing if you start feeding it bad stuff. Okay? And you've got to get it under control. This is a spiritual cancer. Those who continuously commit haram, this black spot grows and grows and grows. To the point that shaitan says, I will turn what is fard into haram and what is haram into fard for you. And I will do it in such a way that when you do the fard, yeah, I will make you hate it. And when you start to do the haram, yeah, I will make you love it. To the point when the fard disappears or you, or you forget to do it, you will not feel anything. And when you do the haram, you will have no guilt. And Allah says that when this black spot keeps growing, it gets to a point of no return. And when that happens, you're written off. So we have to get that under control. So for Muhammad they removed this from him. The second opening that it was described was Muhammad said that Angel Jibreel laid me down, opened me up. He took a vessel of water. Some say it was Zamzam in there. And he washed me, my heart. But this time, there was no black spot removed. He filled my heart with Iman. Right? So he put strength into his heart because he was a broken man the man was tested to the limit in his, and they put iman yeah sabr scorn into his heart purity then he woke up angel jibreel brings this beautiful horse called burak and the horse is it was like it's bigger than a donkey smaller than a mule beautiful okay and it's saddled and it had stirrups and everything jibreel says to muhammad get on to burak the moment he got on, Burak got shocked. It got shocked, it started to shake. And Angel Bill tapped it and said, take it easy, Burak. What you have on you is probably the greatest passenger you've ever had. 
So this means Burak was in this dunya previously. It's come down before for other prophets, for other purposes. So when he realized this, he calmed down. And Muhammad said that this particular horse, the hoof, will reach to a point where its eyes can see. So you imagine you're on a mountain, if you stand up on some hills and somewhere in God knows where, Wickham and so forth, and you can look as far as your eyes can see, that's where hoof will reach. That's how quick it can move. And that night, they went from the Haram to Beitul Muqaddis, which is Palestine, Jerusalem, right? Where the Temple of Solomon was, etc. And he did this in literally less than a night. Literally within maybe an hour, few seconds, very quick and very fast. When Muhammad arrived there, they say that they tie, he tied up the horse to the gate, the door of what would seem and what would historians would say would be the, the door of Solomon's temple. Now this is interesting. At that time, there was nothing there. There was no temple. The temple was destroyed by the Romans because the Christians were anti-Jews. They were more anti-Semitic than anyone else in the world. And because that was their place of worship, they destroyed it and they turned it into a dumpyard. But when Muhammad Salam arrived there, it was as if Allah had put it back there for him. So Muhammad described that I got there and I tied him up to the door. He says, I entered the building and I prayed my two rakat. When I left and I came back out, Jibreel was standing outside and to my amazement, outside I could not see the horizon. It, the land was filled with men. And he said to Jibreel, who are these? He said, each and every one of these are every prophet and messenger that came to this dunya. So you just imagine, Muhammad said, 120,000 plus, all in one single line. He said, now lead the salah for them. So this stipulates a very clear statement about Muhammad being the leader of the Anbiyas, the master of them, the final, the seal. Can you imagine that behind him was Musa Islam, Ibrahim Islam, Isa bin Maryam, Hazrat Harun, etc, etc. All of them and all of the 120,000 that you don't even know about. Every one of them. But they're all passed away, so they're in their spiritual form. So Muhammad performs the prayer. Now, this prayer is just an, the optional prayer because prayer hasn't been instilled now. Then when this has occurred, then Jibreel says to Muhammad from this point we're going to ascend. Now, just be, this story is called Isra wal Miraj. Isra means the night journey, right? So this is the word, the term the Arabs used to use. So when they used to travel at night to one place or the other, they said, we're going to perform the Isra, which is the night journey. And Al-Miraj means the accession, anything that takes you up. Elevators, lifts, that's called Miraj. Yeah, you're going up. So now the horse remains there and Muhammad travels. And this is what's amazing. For Muhammad being in this dunya, being part of the reality of what you see, what you as a human can see and deal with, the kind of people you're dealing with, right? Dealing with famine, de dealing with the, the, you know, the, the climate, etc. He is about to now dwell into a dimension that doesn't even exist in this world. So when Jibreel takes him, he takes him up. And this is very interesting. So Jibreel takes him up 
through seven heavens. Now, this is not heavens as in paradise, right? Let's be absolutely clear. These are layers. So if you look at the hadith itself, the Muhammad described that when he went with Jibreel and he entered, he got to the first layer. When he went to the first layer, Jibreel, when he got there, he got to the gate. There's a gate and there's a gate in each layer. When he got to the gate, there was an angel guarding the gate. Nobody can get into this. The Quran makes it very clear that beyond this point, what you see, all the stars, the universe, the galaxies, everything, this is in your realm. You can't get past the other one, right? Because nobody can get through this point. So imagine how big our universe is and he gets to this point. The angels who are at the gate says, who goes there? Jibreel says, it's Muhammad They say to Jibreel, does he have permission to enter? They said he has permission. Angels can't lie. So it's not like you've got to show a proof. So they open the door and they smile and they give salam to him. He does this for all the six layers. What's interesting is as he's doing all of this, in each part of the heavens now, after he's done the actual salah in Baytul Muqaddis, then he makes his journey. When he enters the first layer, the first person that he sees sitting there that he was introduced is Adam Salam. And Jibreel says to Muhammad Salam, meet your father. So Muhammad gives salam and Adam Salam says, welcome my son. And Muhammad Salam notices that Adam Salam, he's a huge man, massive, because we know the first man was big. He says, I noticed that he was looking on his right and he was looking his left. And every time he looked at his left, he kept on crying. And Muhammad said to Jibreel, he says, why does he keep crying when he looks to his left? He says, these, these people that you see on his left and his right side, these are his children, all of you. The ones on the right are going for heaven. They're going for Jannah. But every time he looks at his children on the left, they're going to hell. And so he feels upset for them. Then Jibreel said, we've got a lot of work to do. And they move to the next level. They go to the second layer. When they go to the second heaven, the, the angel is there and said, who goes there? Jibreel said, it's Muhammad Salam. Do you have permission to enter? Yes. He allows him to come in. When he enters into the second, who does he meet? He meets Yahya and Isa bin Maryam. Now, Yahya and Isa bin Maryam, you will know that both of them are first cousins. So, Maryam, Islam, right? And the mother of Yahya are both sisters, right? Real sisters. And they're both, right? So, John Baptist, they call it Christians, and Isa bin Maryam. And John Baptist was killed. They beheaded him. So, he met them. And they, what, how did they refer to him? They said, welcome, salam unto you, my brother. This is how they met him. So it's interesting with Adhislam, my son. And then they leave and they go to the next stage. They get to the third heaven and they enter in. And when the angel permits him to go in, he meets Yusuf a salam. He says, when I met Yusuf, he said, half the beauty of this universe is in this man's face. You know the whole story of how beautiful he is, right? And he gives salam to Muhammad Sallallahu Welcome, my brother. Then he moves on to the fourth stage. Gets permission from the angels. The angels let him in. And he meets Idris, a.s. salam. And he says, welcome, my brother. Then they go to the fifth one. And there he meets Harun, a.s. salam. Right? The, the cousin of uh, Musa, a.s. salam. Then in the sixth, as he enters in and he gets permission, he meets Musa, a.s. salam. 
So Jibreel says to Muhammad Sallam, meet your brother Musa. Musa Islam responds back to Muhammad Sallam and says, welcome my brother. Then Musa's talking to Jibreel. He starts to get upset and starts to cry. And he says to Jibreel, who is this young man? This young man, why do I see that more of his ummah has entered paradise than my own? Right? Because there was a very special gift that was given to Muhammad for us. There was more barakah that was given to us and a guarantee right, for us to enter paradise for certain things that we do. So he got upset because each prophet, each prophet has a job to do and it wasn't out of jealousy. This jealousy is actually, this jealousy is halal, it's healthy jealousy because it's competitive to do khair, good. Yeah, you have the jealousy to do evil, like he's done better than me, he's that one. This is haram, this is shaitan. But when you're competing with someone in terms of, oh, he's finished the Quran in Ramadan, I didn't do that, and you feel that this is healthy, this is good, right? We know that people like Hazrat Umar bin Khattab used to compete with people like Abu Bakr Sadiq. Oh, who went out this morning to see the sick? I went to see him. Oh, I haven't done that. And they used to try to compete to get more good deeds. So this is healthy. These are the things that you should be more jealous about and not the things of the dunya. So Musa Salam was upset. He's like, why? This man has more people going into heaven than I do. Then he goes to the sixth layer. There, when he enters, Jibreel is greeted by the uh, angel. Angel said, who goes there? He says, Muhammad. Does he have permission to enter? Yes, let him in. When he enters... Jibreel says to Muhammad meet your father Ibrahim Islam. So father, Adam Islam, brother and father again. Obviously Adam Islam is the father of everyone and Ibrahim Islam is his progeny, right? It's his, it's his ancestors. That's where he's come from. And he even described Ibrahim. They said, who did Ibrahim look like? He said, Ibrahim Islam looks like your companion. Meaning who? He says, an identical copy of me, Muhammad Looks exactly the same build, same stature, same look. And Ibrahim Islam greeted Muhammad Sallam. He says, welcome my son. There's many hadiths that describe that he was there with his wife and there were children. There were many children that were with Ibrahim Islam. He was looking after them. He said, who were these children? He said, these are all the children that died Masoom. Young, stillborns, etc. They are staying with them until they are reunited with their parents in Jannah. Interestingly enough, when he came into this sixth or seventh heaven, and I'll, I'll explain why they dispute the sixth seventh, <coughs> They say that Ibrahim Islam was leaning against, they call it Baytul Ma'mur. Yeah? There's some hadith that say it's Sirat al-Muntaha. I'll explain to you what these are. So one says that he was leaning, his back was against Baytul Ma'mur. What is Baytul Ma'mur? So this is interesting. So he's gone through the very highest level. Okay, Baytul Ma'mur is, a, is the angel's version of the Kaaba and when Allah SWT created the first angel or when Allah Taala created everything in this universe or in these layers Baytul Ma'mur was created and every single day 70,000 angels will come and do their tawaf and never to return again so from the day of creation we're not even talking about the creation of the universe we're talking way before that Right? Because Allah created everything way before even created the universe. These angels, 70,000, keep coming every single day, but they don't return. So it's another set, another set, another set. So you can imagine how many angels there are. 
And the interesting thing is the Hadith that also explains that if it's directly above the Kaaba. So if Bayt al-Ma'mur was to drop, it would land directly on top of the Kaaba. Now, Muhammad is introduced to this tree called Sadrat al-Muntaha. So Sidrat al-Muntaha is called a low tree. It's very, it's, it is, the Arabs used to have this tree, it's huge trunk root, and it's massive. The way Muhammad described it, he said this tree was so big, it had fruits the size of like huge vessels, and their leaves were the size of like elephant ears. It was huge. But what was amazing about it, it was emitting these amazing colors that, that Muhammad would find it really difficult to explain those colors. To the side, he goes, we've got a spectrum of colors, but this, these colors don't exist in our universe. I saw what I saw there, but I don't know how to explain it to you here because I've got nothing to recall and describe it to. Now, what was interesting about this was that when they asked, what is, so what does this tree do? And they say that all of the du'as, all of the blessings and all of the, all of the good things that you do, is absorbed by this tree. This tree is the boundary between all the seven layers and then where Allah's throne is. So they say that all of the good deeds that you do is absorbed by the energy of this tree and Allah returns the blessings through this tree to you. And that probably explains this energy that's coming from this tree. Absolutely phenomenal. But we don't have too much evidence in and around this. And the Quran even mentions this in its verses. So for now, Muhammad he's meeting all of these beautiful people. He's, if you're down in the dumps, you know, we always try to, you know, friends try to take you away somewhere, go on a holiday, go for a meal, anything that can distract you, see something nice just to keep your mind calm. But Allah has sent him something very different. Almost to the point. Imagine, right, for some of you it's happened, you, you lose a loved one. It's very difficult for us to understand and appreciate. We know that Allah orders us and tells us to believe the fact that we'll be reunited. If we do good and khair, we'll be in Jannah with them and there will be no ending to this. But what could be better than that when you are shown it? When you're shown this, then it almost feels like, you know, the death of my uncle and the death of my wife is all right. I can deal with this. You see what's happening here, what Allah is doing to Muhammad Sallam. Allah is showing him, Muhammad described two things now, which is beautiful. He said, number one, one angel was brought up to see me, to give salam. So he's met all these angels in, the, in, the, in these layers, right? One angel was brought up. And the angel came in and, and Jibreel said to this angel, this is Muhammad Sallam, give him salam. And before, actually, Jibreel said to Muhammad Sallam, this is such and such angel, give him salam. That this angel gave salam to Muhammad Sallam first. Then Muhammad Sallam noticed something and he said to Jibreel, he said, why does this angel never smile? All the other angels were happy to see me. Why does he not smile? He said, this angel is Malik. He is the guardian of hellfire, of Jahannam. And before Jahannam was created, he was a happy angel. The day he was told and ordered by Allah to be the guardian of this, he never smiled ever again because he knows what's going to happen in this place. So you can see 
that even this angel who's so powerful, um, there's many hadiths describe how big he is, right? He's huge. There's hadith that says if his feet was on the planet Earth, right? So before I say this, so just give you an idea how big these heavens and these layers are, because the Sahabi did ask Prophet how big are these, these, you know, you went through this journey, right, very quickly. So how big, how long did it take you to go from this universe to this one? He said, take a ring and throw it in the largest ocean. That's how big your universe is to the second. Now how big is the second to the third? He goes, take a ring and throw it into the largest ocean. That's how big the second is to the third. And do it again, fourth to the fifth. They say Malik, if he puts his feet on, uh, on the planet Earth, his shoulders touches the seventh heaven. And there's 70,000 guardians of hellfire. How big do you think hell is? How big do you think hell is? Exactly. There's plenty of room. And majority of its occupants are going to be from this dunya. Most of them are going to be from the human race. All of us. Then Muhammad went on to explain. He said, this was a time when I saw Angel Jibreel in its true form. He said, some angels have been given one wing. Some are given two. Some are given three. Have ranking. And in the Quran, Allah says that this angel, I have given him 600 wings. And he saw him... With him, he showed himself, and that highest level, he says, when he spread his wings, I could not see anything. He covered the whole galaxy, pretty much, the whole universe. This is how big his wings were. So this is, he saw him in his true form. Now you have to understand something. What is happening, the, the psychology? Can you imagine one very famous scholar, you know what he said? He said, if any normal human being was to see what Muhammad saw, they would go mad. Their brains will not be able to fathom, will not be able to process what he saw. They will just go crazy. This is what he was shown. So you can imagine by seeing this, what was Allah saying to Muhammad Sallam? You have an army behind you. You're dealing with the pesky humans. You have an army behind you. Why are you worried? So when you have this knowledge, why are you worried about Battle of Badr? Why are you worried about Uhud? Why are you worried when you go to the Battle of Muqtah and 250,000 Roman soldiers are facing 3,000 Muslims? Why are you worried? Battle of Badr, what did Allah say? I sent the angels to help you. You've just seen them. You've seen the size of Malik. Why are you worried? So what if there's 300 of you against 1,000 of them? You're still going to outnumber them. It's a very different psychology. Very different psychology. You've got to have this level of conviction. So Allah has given him, with every low point, I will give you something strong, something great, something that will lift your spirits. Right? So when this now occurred, then he got to his final point. Jibreel could not go past this point. So Muhammad went further. And there Allah met Muhammad in whatever form. And what happened here, and this is the most critical thing, the only com conversation they had was Allah ordered the Prophet to pray. Him and his Ummah to pray, and they will be going to be told how to pray 50 times a day. Can you imagine every other hukam, every other law comes to Master Salam through Angel Jibreel while he is on this dunya? But this one, this is why, you know, when the kids, oh, when you keep going on, going on about praying and praying and praying, 
You understand how powerful this prayer is? This is a gift. Allah is saying, this is not pun. This is a gift. This is the key to Jannah. I'm giving you a gift. On top of all the stress you went through, I'm giving you something for your ummah to let you get in. This is it. And look how ignorant we are. Muhammad once he gets this, and two of the final verses of Surah Baqarah were revealed. They were gifts that were given. And they'll say these are very, very powerful. The very two last surah verses, verses, sorry, of Surah Baqarah. Memorize them. They're very powerful. And read them when you get home. When Muhammad went down, he met Musa. Musa said, what did Allah say to you? He ordered me and my ummah to pray 50 times a day. Musa Islam, let me do you a favor here. 50 is too much for your ummah. They will fail. This is an obligation. They will fail. If they fail, they'll go to hell. Go back to Allah and reduce it. Muhammad respects Musa Islam. He's learned so much about him. He's the most experienced prophet out of all of them. If the, if the Quran wasn't called the Quran, it would be called the Book of Musa because a third of the Quran is all about his stories. He's went through the biggest test. Remember, Musa Islam died at the age of 130. That's why he's always referred to him as in their conversation. He goes, why is my young brother got more, you know, has got more people going to Jannah than I have? He says, look, I'm doing you a favor. So Muhammad goes back to Allah. Allah planned all he knows. And Muhammad asked Allah, yeah, Allah reduce it. So Allah reduced it down by 10, down to 40. He makes his way down. Jibreel's with him. Musa Islam stops him again. He says, no, your Ummah can't do it. Reduce it. So Muhammad goes back, takes the device from his older brother. He asks Allah again. Allah reduces by 10. Comes back, Musa Islam says, no. And he keeps doing this until he gets down to five. Five times a day. Look what Musa says to him. Musa says to Muhammad Do you understand Muhammad? Your Ummah can't even do five. And Muhammad said, I've asked my Lord, my Rabb, so many times, I feel ashamed to ask him again. And the number was stuck at five. If he just took the advice from Musa Islam, we maybe even got one. But you know what the point of this, the moral story is? If he gave us one, we wouldn't even do that. Musa Islam saved us from reading 50 times a day down to five. Five was such a small number. And, we, and Musa Islam was right. He goes, your Ummah can't even do five. They won't do five. And the point is, if you went down to one, he would have said, you can't do one, get it off. Let him to mafia on this. Such a profound point. Such an absolutely profound point. And so you begin to see that in this relationship, in this understanding of Muhammad with Musa, the way he took the advice, he knew the challenges that Musa Islam used to have. So he wanted to do as much as he can. But there was that fine line that he just didn't want to go beyond. Now we are in that situation where Allah SWT has ordered us. These prayer are so important for us that regardless of anything else, that's why the hadith says that all the knots of Islam will be slowly untied from the way you implement Islam as a global system. Because we have a duty as Muhammad he implemented Islam as a global system. That will be gone. Then after that, all of the mu'amilat, anything to do with the society affairs, all of that will be gone. Then 
the little bits will be gone. Your fasting will drop. Then your, you know, your, your, your zakat will drop. Then people will not bother about hajj. All the way down to the very last knot. And what was that? He says salah. Because once salah is gone, it's game over. It is game over. So I'm not going to carry on there because we'll, inshallah we'll carry this story over next week as well. But there's a couple of points I just want to make here. So number one is the fact that the element of the prayer is incumbent on us because that is what's going to define us as a Muslim versus a kuffar. The second part is that there was no rules. that This was the, one of the very first rules that was sent down. Okay, very first rule. There was a couple of things that happened. Even Jibreel, before Muhammad ascended up to the heavens, Jibreel came to Muhammad with, some say two vessels, some say three. One was milk, one was wine, and one was honey. And he said to Muhammad pick whichever one you want for your ummah. He says, I'll take the milk. He said, the milk is the fitrah of your ummah, purity. That your ummah is pure. That is their natural position. And they can only from this point corrupt themselves. So Allah has blessed us with purity. Wine is not pure. Wine has bacteria. It's not pure. It doesn't have a level of purity at all in itself. So milk was the right choice that he had made. He could have chosen wine. It wasn't made haram at that time. That's why we know that Salah was the first one that came down. The first ruling. This was a gift. For Muhammad this was the biggest gift that he can be given. Because this was Allah saying to Muhammad by this prayer, by doing this salah, I'm opening up a channel to you and the ummah now. Before there was channels there, it was through you. Now the channel's opened. Now, come and ask me whatever you want. I'm with you. The other element of the whole thing that I was trying to say was, for the first 13 years, it is all about iman. So this is the thing that I think we have a problem with. We get factuated about rules and regulations. We get factuated, oh, what day is Eid? Was the moon sighting? Why did we do split this, that, whatever? And we, we get wrapped over disputing about so many different issues. The problem here is we don't really care about these issues. We just argue for the sake of arguing. We've got fundamental issues. If I knew that I had problems with my salah and I understood from what Allah has said, that by not having this salah, you're not even getting even to paradise. You're not even going to get a look on it. I would not be worried about these things. You understand? It is a question of mental priority, psychological priority. You understand? Imagine like if something really, really bad, you know, somebody gets cancer in your family, right? And then people start sitting there, you know, you're sitting with friends and you know this story, you know, you know what's happened in the family, but you haven't told anyone. And you're sitting with friends and the friends are talking about football match, who's better, who's not better. Or they're talking about the demise of, you know, um, or the potential of that we can lose our jobs and the interest rates have gone up. Isn't that subject irrelevant compared to the problem you've just heard? If you've just been told that you've got cancer, you're going to die, does this it may have any relevance anymore? Nothing. You put it into position. If I know in my heart that I have a good chance of going hell, I don't care about whether you pray today, tomorrow, you do this, you do that. I've got bigger things to worry about. I'm not going to have, spend my time debating about when Ramadan should be, when Eid should be, and when this should be, and you praying this way, you're not lifting, you know, you're not rolling up your, your, your trousers, you're not doing Rafi Adan, you're not doing this. 
don't care. I want to unite. I want you to help me to come closer to Allah. I want to see if I can help you. You understand? So that shows us that our mindset isn't right. So the advice here is that we should spend more time, more time in building that taqwa. And so how do you do that? You do that by understanding the more fundamental parts of Islam. Allah. What is Allah? Allah's creation, Allah's gifts, Allah's verses in the Quran. Understanding them, making you think, making the connection by what he has said to the world that you have today. Because Allah always makes reference. He said, do you not think about this? Do you not think about how the night turns to day? Do you not think about the mountains? Do you not think about how the child is born? Do you not think about this? He's trying to force you. But we're the most blindest people in the world. We walk through everything and we don't see these things. We don't, you know, normal, if you, if you, if I, if you're a human being and I plonked you in, you know, I blindfolded you and I threw you in some planet, what would you do? You would be thinking, what time is dinner? You'd be looking around you thinking, where is this? Where have I come from? What is all these beautiful things? Shaitan has made us so blind to it. He's not letting us get through. He wants all of us to fail. He wants everyone and he's doing such a phenomenal job. And you know the irony of it is, even he knows Allah exists. Even he knows that Prophet Muhammad is the final messenger. Even he knows the hukum of Allah. Even he knows that there is a heaven and hell. But he's convinced us there is nothing there. So this is crucial for us. For Muhammad this was the thing that he needed. After Allah pushed him and broke him down to the very lowest point of his life. Then Allah said, now wake up because everything you see is why i've always used to say to people the dunya is just a hallucination it's a mirage your friends your brothers your mothers your sisters everything around your jobs is just a mirage allah has put it in front of you. it's a stage it's a theater this is what i'm trying to tell you. it's a theater you have been employed by allah to be the actor and this particular, each and every one have our own stages and our own theatre. There's our own production. The only difference is you don't know what the script is. You have to play out that script. And everyone Allah brings into your life, onto that theatre, you have to interact with. And you have to do the right thing every single time. Whether somebody offers you an opportunity, which is halal, versus an opportunity, which is haram. Whether Allah puts something in front of you which you should do and order, everything is staged up except for you don't know what that script is, you're playing at that script. And then when, when, the, when every movie comes to an end and when it's done, the credits are done, everything is gone. And Ibrahim Islam, he said to uh, Muhammad Salam, he said, you know Jannah, He's, he was shown Jannah, he said Jannah is beautiful. But there is nothing there in Jannah. There's no seeds or anything yet. He goes, they will be planted by everyone in this dunya whilst they worship. Subhanallah, Alhamdulillah, Allah Akbar. All of these will become the seeds in Jannah and the trees will grow from this. So all the worship we do will beautify Jannah even more. So these are the things just to keep in mind, right? This story is crucial for you and me. Because it un makes us understand several things. Whenever you go through difficulties in life, so whatever stage of life you are, whether you're praying, you're not praying, okay? 
you are Muslim, you have something that binds you to Islam. When Allah, when you have a difficulty, no matter how big or small, Allah says each test is proportioned to what I give in each individual. And those tests will change over, over time. Whenever something bad happens, it's from Allah, has no value, it's not good or bad. The situation that occurs is going to make you something better. If a loved one had not Allah not taken them away from you, you could have been jahil all your life, right? But if they take away from you, it might wake you up to think about the truth, the haq. Because what was the alternative? Because if Allah kept him in this life and you were jahil, then guess what? In this dunya, you'll be with them. But in Jahannam, you'll be there alone and he will be there in Jannah. You understand? So when Allah takes it away, don't cry. Do not curse Allah. Do not turn against him like the Quraysh used to do. Be content that Allah has done me a favor and I need to do something good. Nothing is bad. If you get bullied at school, you get picked on, you fail your exam, it is from Allah and it was targeted for you. You have to do the next right thing, which is what? You have to get closer to Allah. And when you keep going through it, sometimes they come in twos, they come in threes, they come in fours. But Allah promised after this event, every time I would test you, if you just have patience and conviction in me, I will give you something a hundred times better than this that will make you forget this pain. And that's the key thing to remember. Jazakallah khair, inshallah, we'll leave it at that. We'll see you next week.